just uh, driving here, driving here this morning, going to drop Emily off, my daughter, she's four and three quarters, and uh, everything changes for her tomorrow, she goes to school, which is a big deal, big deal for her, big deal for a parent, and I was just thinking, just so many things happen at once, she's going to school, that's happening, she is very soon going to have the stabilizers taken off her bike, that's a moment, isn't it? I mean, as a parent, how do you deal with that? You just like, stabilize off away you go. You just know that she's going to come off and there's going to be tears and everything. But she's got to learn that, I'm sure. And then, uh, you know, she swims at the moment with armbands on as well. But soon, she's got swimming lessons tomorrow night, she's going to be swimming without armbands. And it was just that thinking in the car, how to link this in, thinking in the car that at a certain point in our, our Christian lives, it's like the stabilizers get removed, the, the armbands go, and we're like, we're walking it out on our own. And that's an important time. And what comes to us at that time is the Word of God. The Word of God is so powerful in our lives. It teaches us, it trains us. And as those stabilizers get removed, as those armbands get removed, we need to spend more time in the Word, more time listening to God and responding to what He's speaking into our lives. So that's the gap filler, and I'm going to start now. (laughs) As we start this... We're going to travel back in history. We're going to travel back in history. And it's the sense and the image of destruction and devastation that we have really got to get into our our minds here. The destruction and the, the devastation. We're going back to 587 BC and Jerusalem. Jerusalem, God's city, was destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and he he broke down the city walls and he he burned the the gates with fire. I wanted to do a demonstration of that just to capture imagination, but I figured for health and safety reasons that wouldn't be good, although it would be memorable. Any, Any Jews, any Jews that showed any promise, the physically, the the academically strong, Nebuchadnezzar had them forcibly removed and taken to Babylon in exile. Around 50 years later in 538 BC, the first exiles arrived back in Jerusalem. It wouldn't have been a a glorious homecoming, but a distressing return to, to start again, to regroup, to reclaim, and to to rebuild. And the task of head would have it would have been enormous. It would have demanded great personal sacrifice. We're picking up the story from where Leon left off last week. And there's, there's two main characters here, Ezra and Nehemiah. We're not so worried about the, the chronology, the, the order of events, because that's too difficult. We're more, into, we're more into what these two characters represent, what they communicate to us as a church in this defining time of vision and, and building. Loosely speaking, we've we've split them apart with Nehemiah, the the politician, being responsible for the the outward, responsible for the the structural, the the city walls and and the gate. And Ezra, the the priest, being responsible for the the inward, the spiritual, the altar and the, the temple. And this week we're covering two events. The first comes in Nehemiah chapter 2, where, under the cover of darkness, Nehemiah takes a, a ride around the city wall. The second event comes in Ezra chapter 3, where despite their fear, the priests and the the people rebuild the altar. So let's get into the Bible and the books themselves. 
We're going to start in Nehemiah 2 with verses 11 to 15. That's Nehemiah 2 verses 11 to 15. It says this. And try and play it out in your imagination. It says, I went to Jerusalem. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate. What great names those are. I wonder if it affected house prices. Can you, remember li- can you imagine living in like 25 dung gate road? It wouldn't work, would it? Examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. I don't know about you but I'm often wondering what goes through the minds of these Bible characters. I mean Nehemiah. Taking a ride, looking around. What was going through his mind? The possibility of of backing out. Was he reviewing all of his options? Asking himself, was it possible to, to rebuild the walls? Before he opened his mouth and committed himself to it. What was going through Nehemiah's mind? What he witnessed under cover of darkness was an image of destruction and and devastation there were Jews living there but the city walls the gate the altar the temple the 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 things that represented God's presence in that place were either non-existent or in decay the thing is Nehemiah wasn't the only person to see the damage and the destruction it was displayed for all to see a lasting reminder a, a disgrace to the name of God someone needed to seize the lead To make it personal, Nehemiah was that man. In Nehemiah 2, verse 17, it says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. And its gate has been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. We have a choice. We have a choice when it comes to the Bible, especially when it comes to the the Old Testament that seems so distant, so historic. To to, to read about an event, to read about a character, and then we can leave it there on the page as history, as as fact, as, as knowledge. Or we can take that event, we can take that character and we can move it forward through time and, and through culture, up to our time and our culture. And we can ask the question, What is God trying to tell me now in this place? And I had this idea after reading that. I had this idea that under cover of darkness, like Nehemiah, I could take a ride and and look around. Not Jerusalem, that's a jaunt, but around our area. Take a look around Howell's Owen. Take a look around the wider black country. And it's this sense of, of going undercover. Of getting under the surface, of seeing what's really going on. That got hold of me. Anyone ever heard of Donald McIntyre? Donald McIntyre. To be fair, he's not that well known. All the TV series, McIntyre Undercover, or the film, A Very British Gangster. I've not seen any of them, but the internet fills in the gaps. Donald McIntyre. 
Donald McIntyre is a journalist that specialises in hard-hitting investigations and undercover operations that get exposed on TV. More recently, he came second in Dancing on Ice, which seems like a strange change from hard man investigator to ice dancer. But coming back to the point, going undercover, going undercover, getting under the surface, seeing what's really going on. I think personally in my life, I can get comfortable. I can live on the surface. I don't need to ask the questions. I don't need to to know the worst. But then God pulls me up short. And he says, Dan, you need to get underneath this. You need to know what's really going on. Because we live in a damaged society. How zone, the black country, is a damaged society. And God can't stand injustice. He can't stand abuse of any form. He can't stand it when the things that represent his presence, that represent his glory in a place, are either non-existent or in decay. And if we were under cover of darkness to take a ride around Zone and a ride around the black country, it would probably shock us. It would probably chill us to the bones to see what actually goes on. I think we can become numb to our surroundings. I think we can be over-informed and under-motivated. And we need to get under the surface. We need to ask the questions. We need to find out the worst. We need to go from a place of comfort to a place of personal connection with our damaged society. The movers, that's us, the movers need to get moved. We're like Nehemiah, we make it personal. And we say, you see the trouble that we're in? Come, let us rebuild and we will no longer be in disgrace. We have an influence. As Christians, we have an influence. God's presence, God's glory can head out of this church. It can head out into Zone. It can head out into the black country. It can make a difference for this damaged society. We need to believe that. We need to pray for that. We need to live for that. We need to continue to work to make that a present reality now. The second event, the second event comes with Ezra, where despite their fear, the priests and the the people rebuild the altar. But before we go there, I want us to look at some other altars in the Old Testament. Because it's It's at the altar. It's at the altar, at the the point where a sacrifice is made that we learn about God and we learn about ourselves. And as we, as a a church, as we head into this defining time of vision and, and building, we need to know why it is essential that as Christians we are continually making sacrifices for God. So there are five scenes, five altars that I'm going to move through reasonably fast, pulling out one thing, one thing that can be learnt, and then we'll finish the fifth and final altar with Ezra. The first scene comes with Noah in Genesis 8. I'm sure you know that Noah is famous for surviving the flood, and, and straight after Noah built an altar, He takes some of the clean animals and the the clean birds and he sacrifices them and burns them on the altar, which seems quite mean having spent so much time with them and having survived the flood to then wipe them out on the altar. The Bible says, 
The Bible says that the Lord smelled the, the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground. And what comes from God, what comes from God there at that altar is a promise, a promise that he would never curse the ground. And what we find as we journey through the Bible, what we find are God-given promises that we can be secure in. And the most incredible of these, the most incredible comes with Jesus at the point of sacrifice, at the point where God gave his only son to die for us on the cross. We get the promise of forgiveness. We get the promise of salvation. We get the promise of freedom. We get the promise of a relationship with the Almighty. We get the promise of an eternity spent with God at the altar, at the the point of sacrifice. God reveals his promises to us. The second altar comes with Abraham in Genesis 22. Again, I'm sure you know that Abraham is, is told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And the story is really gripping as Abraham journeys to the, the point of sacrifice. And then, knife in hand, ready to, to kill his son, the angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham, and we all breathe a huge sigh of relief. Then Abraham looks up and in a thicket caught by its horns is a ram. Abraham takes the ram and sacrifices it as a a burnt offering. Abraham then names that place. He calls it, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And in that scene, at that point of, of sacrifice, a part of God's character is revealed. That God was the provider. That in every situation that Abraham would meet along the road, God would provide. He would be there. God would be there when he he needed him the most. And that doesn't stop there with Abraham. It continues on. God's character is unchanging. He is our provider in our lives. He is our provider in the, the vision that we're heading towards in the church. God is our provider and we shouldn't doubt that he will bring his plan through to completion. Because it's part of his character. It's who he is at the altar. At the point of sacrifice, God reveals his character to us. The third altar, and we're moving through these really fast, comes with Moses in Exodus 20. And this is where Moses gets the instructions on how to build an altar. Moses is told not to use dressed stones because it would defile the altar to use a tool on it. And he's also told not to go up to the altar on steps. And these instructions sound quite abstract, but there is a a purpose behind it. Using uncut stones meant that the people couldn't cut images. They couldn't cut the faces of supposed gods into the altar. And not using steps meant that his nakedness, Moses' nakedness, would not get exposed on the altar. And the, the restrictions here, the restrictions here are about how we approach God. We talk about, we talk about having a, a relationship with God, that he is close to us, that he is personal. And that is all correct. He is all of that. But along with that, God is the, the Lord of Lords. He is the, the King of Kings. He is the Almighty. He is holy beyond our comprehension. And when we approach God, there must be a certain reverence and respect for who he is. At the altar, 
at the point of sacrifice. God reveals his holiness to us. The fourth altar. The fourth altar comes with a prophet Malachi in Malachi 1. And this isn't about building an altar. This is about what's being sacrificed on the altar. See, over time, over time, God's people had slipped. What started out as the very best that they could offer to God was now whatever they could find, whatever they could get away with. God's people were sacrificing diseased or crippled animals and expecting God to be pleased with them. The prophet Malachi speaks against the the people. He gets stoked up and he he calls them back to a, a better sacrifice. And for God's people, for us now, the altar, the point of sacrifice is really where the rubber hits the road. It's where God, it's where people get to see how much we value him. Does God come first or does he come down the list? Am I giving God my best or trying to get away with something that's inferior? Something that's not a a worthy response. And sometimes I'm the only person. The person that's going to be making that sacrifice. You're the only people who's going to know the answer to that. Is it the best or is it something that's inferior? A sacrifice needs to cost us something. And at the altar, at the point of sacrifice, the expectation of God on us is revealed. The fifth and the the final altar comes in Ezra. And we're going to read this one through. In Ezra 3 verses 1 to 2. That's Ezra 3 verses 1 to 2. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jezazadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. It seems that so often in the Bible, God's people get it wrong, and they mess up ten times before they get it right the first time. But right here, with the the building of the altar, the priests and the people, they got it right first time. They put the first things first. They built the altar and met with God. The center of the community there was revealed with the altar. And for us as a church, what we do first, what we say first, who we come to first, that marks out our center. And it is and always will be the Lord Almighty. At the altar, at the point of sacrifice, the center of a community is revealed. So that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. That's where God's promises and his character and his holiness and his expectation on us and the the center of a, a community gets revealed at the point of sacrifice. But where have all the altars gone now? in our time and in our culture? And the answer to that really depends on how much you push the image and the the definition. See, between the Old Testament and the the New Testament, especially when Jesus starts to preach and to teach, the altar changes from a a physical and actual place to a a spiritual place that is in us and possibly around us and, and, and beyond us. 
And working with this image, this definition of the altar, and taking a ride and and looking around, you realise that there are modern altars. That people are making sacrifices every day. For example, and this isn't a, a criticism, the football match. The place where after a goal, you see grown men hugging and kissing each other. What's the the sacrifice there? Time, money, emotions, being depressed for a weekend if the team loses. And then the shopping mall. The place where after spending money you see grown men reduced to tears. (laughs) Me, certainly. What's the sacrifice there? Time, money, emotions, being depressed for a weekend. It's the same. It's the same and you you can have a laugh with this. But it does get more serious. Because people can sacrifice their family on the altar of a business and making money. People can sacrifice their marriages on the altar of an affair. People can sacrifice their health and their futures on the altar of drink or drugs. People can sacrifice a lot to gain nothing. Nothing of any value. In our time... In our culture, there are sacrifices being made all around. And as Christians, we can be that light, we can be that good news, but we've also got to be careful because we're not immune to this. We can get so wrapped up with what's going on that our devotion is turned away, that our sacrifices come more in line with what the world desires than with building God's kingdom. And then having seen that there are altars out there, I ask the question, where is the altar in here? Where is my altar gone? Where is the place where I meet with God? Is it church? Yeah, I'll meet with God here. Is it in my devotional time? Yeah, I'll meet with God there. But the more I I thought about it, the more I realised that we need to be meeting with God all the time. Sounds obvious. In Romans 12 verse 1, Romans 12 verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. See, at one level, at one level, God requires nothing from us. Our forgiveness, our salvation, it comes for free. But at another level, At another level, he requires everything from us. We are living sacrifices. For me, I could be driving to Redditch in the morning and I'm stuck behind a a slow car getting frustrated. But God is there. I can pray. I can give the day over to him because I'm meant to be a living sacrifice. I could be at Specsavers and sometimes the work, it gets repetitive. But I'm, I'm part of a team there and I need to give them my best. Because I'm meant to be a living sacrifice. I could be at home and it's tea time and I'm I'm feeling tired and ready to switch off. But it's my opportunity to give myself to my family. To talk, to, to let them know how important they are to me. After all, I'm meant to be a living sacrifice. I should be living. We should be living as a continual sacrifice. God is into every aspect of our lives and when I think about that I realise that over the years there have been degrees of surrender 
what seemed like a, a sacrifice 10 years ago or five years ago or two years ago or even six months ago, what seemed like a sacrifice then doesn't feel like a, a sacrifice now because it's become part of who I am. Life isn't one long pleasure ride. I'm sure everyone has experienced that. Sometimes, sometimes we're going to feel that we're totally on the altar. In Philippians 2 verse 17, the Apostle Paul, he writes and he says, because he was feeling totally on the altar, he says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. That's courageous. That's courageous. That's Christian maturity. Being poured out and yet being glad and rejoicing. That's when Jesus, that's when you know that Jesus has really got a hold of your life. We're coming to the the finish now. The finish. And with Nehemiah and Ezra, there's one more thing to deal with. After Nehemiah finished his ride around the walls and he spoke to the people and inspired them, they responded and they said, let us start rebuilding. Work began and three people of influence, Sambalat, Horonite, Tobiah, show up on the, on the building site to mock and to, to ridicule and to oppose what's going on. In Nehemiah 2 verse 20, Nehemiah says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And again in Ezra, as they rebuild the altar, the people feel threatened. In Ezra 3 verse 3 it says, Despite despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built an altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord. Both morning and evening sacrifices. And what it comes down to here, what it comes down to is fear. And fear is a, it's a strong emotion. It stops us in our tracks. And sometimes that's a good thing. Keeps us from the edge. Keeps us from hurting ourselves. But sometimes fear is a, a bad thing. It can be a bad thing where the enemy works against us to oppose a, a God-given venture or vision. You've probably realised that my inspiration often comes through quotes And I've saved four quotes until the finish. Big finish, four quotes. It's been said that. It's been said that only when we are no longer afraid do we begin to live. It's been said that one man with courage makes a majority. It's been said that the desire for safety stands against every great and noble enterprise. We live in a relatively safe Environment. Often our fears are not about life and death. They are more about the fear of embarrassment. They're more about our self-confidence or the, the fear of failure. And there can also be a fear. A fear of standing out. Of hearing people say to us, who do you think you are standing out, making a fuss? It was Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela that said, As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do so. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do so. Through the coming months and through the coming years, as we as individuals and 
as a, a church work and sacrifice as we give and as we grow, as we head into this defining time of vision and building. Not only will we see a new structure emerge, but as individuals, as a church, we will come out of it as bigger people. By overcoming our fears, we begin to live life to the full. With courage, with courage we make a majority. By stepping out of the safety of what we know, we can achieve a great and a a noble enterprise. As our own lights shine, we can set others alight and they can shine brighter than us. When we're following a God-given venture or a God-given vision, then despite any fear, we must push through. And the God of heaven, like Nehemiah said, will give us success. And all glory, all praise, all acclamation goes straight back to him. Let's pray.